Welcome everyone to another episode of Cashflow Equals Accounting. This is your host, George Aguilar, and today we have Julian Montoya. Julian is a real estate investor from Asheville, North Carolina, and runs JM11 Investments. Julian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jorge. So, Julian, um, so let's start with some basic questions. How did you get started in real estate investing? Uh, well, uh, I have always been studying the clues um, throughout time that successful people leave behind. Um, the biggest pattern I've found are reading books or meeting with wealthy individuals or successful individuals is that real estate was one of the largest wealth accelerators for people. Um, so one time I heard a radio ad from Fortune Builders. Um, this is a large real estate investing education company. Mm-hmm. So I went to their two-day event and um, got hooked based on the fact that they were just not selling education. They were actually legitimately interested in educating people on becoming more financially literate and living a lifestyle by design. So this came in a time in my life where it was um, it was exactly what I was looking for. Um, so... I just digged in. Great, great. <clears throat> so, you know, a lot of people look into those stuff, right? So just kind of like a question, why not stocks or, or something else? Was You know, why real estate investing? Yeah, so um, what I tell people is there, so there's, there's four different asset classes. Mm-hmm. There's, there's business, which you're leveraging um, people's everything. So um, pretty much uh, time, their actual... Uh, expertise, etc. Then you got stocks, which um, it's it's probably the most variable out of the uh, out of the asset classes. You mm-hmm. can you can lose your, if you don't know what you're doing, you can lose your money very quickly. Um, but you can also make a lot of money uh, doing it. Now you have real estate, which with real estate, um, all your investment is actually secured by a tangible asset. So um, in business. From what I've learned in businesses, uh, the the business asset class is where you make the most amount of money, but is the hardest and and the one where where um, a lot of people uh, fail. So when you hear uh, sometimes like most businesses fail between five to seven years, they're usually talking about that specific asset class. Now within stocks, um, a lot of the time, or actually the majority of the time, people have only one exit strategy, which is that the stock goes up. Right, they don't have uh, a lot of extra strategies. If the stock just keeps, um, it just it stays at the same price or goes down, um, so it's a very um, it's a very risky investment if you don't if you don't know what you're doing. And then uh, the good thing about real real estate is if you're able to buy um, at the correct price, your uh, real estate always appreciates, and your investment is secured by an actual asset. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the last the last one is, for example, if you get into if you get into bonds or uh, the debt market, um, which, as most of you guys know, when you invest your money in bonds, the return investment is is very small. Right. Compared to the other asset classes we talked about. So in terms of why I got into real estate first, um, I love the idea of um, building or remodeling or make, making a home. And uh, the other the other aspect is you are making an investment that has a controlled risk if you're able to buy at the right price. I mean, I, I, I definitely agree with you. I definitely agree with you when, when you kind of break down the asset classes like that. And, and you know, I think your, your description of each asset class was, was right on. Now, tell us a little bit about your first deal. Was it a wholesale, a, a fix and flip? What was it? Yeah, so... Um, the first deal, and I and I tell real estate investors, the first deal I feel like, um, you know, depending on where, you know, if you have money, the first deal can be relatively easy to find. Um, it, I started when I was, I started when I was twenty five. So um, I did. I just had gotten out of college. I didn't have too much money. So for me, the first deal was the toughest to find because, um, uh, first of all, you're a little bit more nervous about getting into a deal that that might fail. Um, so I just gave it some time, right? So once I found a deal that made sense in terms of the numbers, um, and let's go back a little bit. So how did I find that deal? So um, that deal was found through, um, there was a, a, actually I'm from Medellin, Colombia, and there's another real estate inv- uh, agent that mm-hmm. was from 
um, from Colombia. And one time he passed by a property that was um, that he was doing an open house on, and the property right beside it was pretty, you know, pretty torn down. So he went over, talked to the seller, and right when he talked to the seller, in his mind he thought, man, this would be a perfect opportunity for Julian. So he called me up and he said, hey, I think I have the perfect opportunity for you, but you have to get here now, right, to see it. You know, so I stopped what I was doing, and I went over to the house, walked through it, ran the numbers, and I'm like, this is it. There's there's that feeling. Mm-hmm. There's there's two feelings that uh, you feel when you have a deal. You feel like, oh, I'm, 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 I might be overstretching myself, and it may be a deal. Um, and a lot of people, get in, uh, they make mistakes of getting into a deal where they feel like that. And there's other deals where you just feel it right inside you, that intuition that tells you, this is it. This is something I can make happen, right? So once I found a deal that made sense in terms of numbers, the next question was, how am I going to get the money, right? I was already um, pretty much using most of my credit for my education. Um, so when I found it, I sent it to another investor that I agreed to do a joint venture deal where her and her private lender would fund the transaction. So I would put the sweat equity completely in because she was in South Carolina. So I would put all the sweat equity and also educate myself on how to do it with her supervision. Um, but with the condition that we would split the profit 50-50. So at this point, I didn't know how much sweat equity was involved, but it ends up being a, a ton from accounting, material handling, contract management, etc. But I agreed to do this arrangement uh, to start out, even though I did, you know, I did all the work and I wasn't making as much money as you know as I should for the amount of work. So the most challenging part of this renovation was dealing with back contractors. The only contractor I found that was within budget for everything ended up doing very unethical things throughout the project. So I had to send him uh, an order uh, to not come near by the property and some of his workers ended up working for me. So I would say the first thing is keeping your first rehab to the budget um, uh, you actually outlined from the beginning becomes very challenging as you find out what things actually cost and as, and as contractors might try to take advantage of you for your experience level. But what went according to plan is that by, you know, by heating the, the, the basement, the whole uh, basement, and increasing the heating living area, we ended up selling for a premium and getting the house under contract three weeks before actually finishing. So that was my first, that was my first deal. Wow, you know, and this is actually a fairly common theme uh, in the real estate investing world where bad contractors just kind of seem to be everywhere. So f- from this experience, Julian, how would you know what advice would you give someone going into this for the first time or you know how, what are the signs to look out for for a contractor how how do you know whether that contractor is good or or what can you do uh to prevent from from landing a bad contractor yeah so the advice i would give on that is you know um obviously as i as i've gotten more experience and and, and more things have happened uh you know in different rehabs what I realize is, so real estate is a very fast business. So when you get a property under contract, you got your due diligence. In that time, you're trying to find money, you're trying to find contractors, you're trying to outline your, your, your budget, etc. So a lot of the times, you know, a lot of educators tell you, okay, you have to check all the references, you got to, um, you know, make sure you got contracts perfect and everything. But in the reality of things, um, sometimes you just don't have the time to vet them for a whole week, right? Because as, as other contractors are very busy doing their other jobs, they, uh, I mean, first of all, they're not very technologically, you know, um, adept, I would say. So they don't get back to you as quickly with, let's say, references or insurance and all this stuff, right? Not to say that you shouldn't do that stuff. But what I have found out is the first method is find um, for your, I mean, for your first deal, find a contractor that somebody has used before and has had a good experience with. Um, because um, that contractor is almost uh, liable to the pe- to the person that referred you, um, right? And it, they become more accountable to uh, um, to maintain their reputation as a good contractor. So I w- that would be the first thing I would do. The second thing I would do is make sure, regardless, that you get um, a quote in writing. Have to get a quote in writing. Sometimes. You have contractors that seem very nice and you've seen their work and you've seen the references and you're like, man, this contractor knows what they're doing. So you're like, um, okay, I might um, skip 
I might skip having a, a, you know, just having like a word of mouth quote. If a contractor tell me, hey, this job is $10,000, okay, I've seen their work, they look very good and stuff, you can get, um, you can get in, a, in a mess uh, there. And the other thing, you got to have very good contracts like insurance. You got to make sure you have the W-9 um, when you first uh, get in a relationship with them because if something goes bad down the line and they don't want to sign your W-9 uh, later on, well, then you're stuck with actually paying their taxes. So if we go back to, to what I was saying, the first thing is find contractors that people around you or other investors around you have dealt with and have had good experiences with. Uh, the second is make sure you have a, 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 a signed W-9 and a signed uh, quote with everything detailed that you need to do. And um, the last thing I would say, um, see if they can send you any references of their, their actual work. A lot of the time, just like I said, that is the ideal scenario that they send you references, but sometimes they're so fast or you need them so fast that you don't have time. So what I started doing is a lot of contractors here in Asheville, they require about half to a third um, down payment. So what I actually started doing is if they have if they include materials in their quote, um, I only give them half of the materials. They usually want all of the materials, mm-hmm. but I, I give them half of the materials just to know that they have some skin in the game, that they're buying they they're buying some of the materials, and if they leave the job site or whatever, that they're stuck with those materials and not really being able being able to do anything. And as far as the labor, I never pay any down payment on the labor because that's their part. They should. Um, you know, they should, uh, they should guarantee. Right. Um, so that's, that's one thing I've learned. And the other thing I've learned is definitely, definitely leave the last payment before you check full the, the work in full. The last payment should be there. Um, the biggest payment and also to not forget the final lien waiver, just to make sure that, um, uh, there is a challenge in real estate where a contractor can place a mechanics lien on your property for you not paying them. So let's say if you get into the scenario where you have a quote for $10,000 and you pay the contractor exactly $10,000. Well, for some reason, they make up the story in the courthouse that they um, they actually did more work than, than you already paid them and they put a mechanics lien. So now it becomes a, a trouble to actually fight the mechanics lien. You can't sell the house until you get that resolved and they end up wasting a lot of time. So you gotta make sure if we go back, you got to make sure from the beginning you have a quote in writing, a W-9 signed. Um, you don't pay them too much uh, down payment. You leave the final payment to be the largest, and you make sure you sign the the, uh, the final lien waiver. Right? So that's kind of the advice I would, I would give. And the other advice I would give that's very important is a lot of contractors carry general liability insurance. So general liability insurance for example, would cover if they drop if they're on the roof and they drop a hammer, um, and the hammer falls down in a car underneath. It covers that car underneath. But what I have found out actually in this past project is that if a contractor does bad work inside your house, so they frame your house badly or they do a bad HVAC work, that general liability insurance does not cover does not cover you for that which becomes a huge issue because I had a contractor mess up the whole, um, um, most of the roof on this house that I'm finishing now and the general liability insurance won't cover it. So the, the, as a lesson from that in the future, I would require for them to have um, a different types of, a different type of insurance that does cover their uh, sort of their malpractice as I would call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would, that would kind of sum up the advice I would give as far as contractors. I mean, Julian, I think this alone by itself is gold, you know, because, you know, from my experience talking to real estate investors, this is where they get the most in trouble or this is where a good deal turns into a not so good deal or a break even deal because they kind of, you know, they don't they didn't have a procedure in place to how to vet the contractors and how to lay out a payment plan that benefits the investor and benefits the the, the the contractor. So I think this alone by itself is great, great content, Julian. Um, so now you did talk about your first deal finding uh, an investor. And I want to talk a little bit about that because I feel most people starting in the real estate investing shy away from it because of what you said. They feel like they don't have money. 
so they don't know how to proceed from there. So can you talk about um, how do you approach an investor when you know you don't have a lot of money, you don't have that many deals under your belt? You know how did you how do you work that out from your experience? So what I would say, and one of the things that I didn't believe at first when I got started was that um, people would tell you just if there's a deal, money comes, right? But as you start finding deals, you realize. Uh, man, the um, at first you realize, man, there's not. Where do I find the money, right? Because um, a lot of hard money lenders, for example, would lend you at first when you're just beginning uh, to you know starting. They would lend you seventy five percent or eighty percent, maybe of um, the whole project. So, um, you know, that's all good and perfect. Um, so let's say a, a project is hundred thousand. Just to just to kind of make it a little bit more clear, if a project is a hundred thousand, and you got another hundred thousand in in um, in renovations, so you have about two hundred thousand uh, full in in your in your cost. If a lender lends you eighty uh, percent, then it leaves you putting up about about forty thousand dollars. About forty thousand dollars that you have to come up for yourself. Now that's forty thousand just for the deals. That doesn't include the closing cost, right? So if we, if we break it down, let's let's break it down even even farther. Let's say a whole just to make the math easy. You have hundred thousand is your whole purchase plus rehab cost. A rehab lender uh, lends you eighty percent of that. So then that means that they lend you eighty thousand, and you have to put twenty thousand. Now your closing costs include. Um, you know, uh, for example, it, in, it includes all the recording fees and all that stuff, but it also includes the origination fee that the hard money lender charges you, um, you know, those other little things. So let's just call it, you, you're putting up another 5000 So now you have $25,000 that you have to put up from your own pocket. And then also the hard money lender, when you're first starting out, requires you to have uh, reserve requirements. So, for example, if you have, if they let you, $80,000 at 12%, uh, let's say at the end of the day, they're requiring you to pay a monthly interest payment of $1,000 per month, right? So some hard money lenders require you to have, um, you know, let's say six months of reserve. So that's $6,000. So remember, we had $25,000, so $20,000 of gap that you're you're, um, you're required to come up with. You have $5,000 of um, closing costs. And origination fees and all that stuff. So you have twenty five thousand and six thousand dollars for reserve that you have to keep it in your account. So that's thirty one thousand dollars. So you might say, man, that's that's a lot of money. If you're just starting out, that's a lot of money. You just, just kind of have laying around. Um, so the way I found that was that was more valuable for the reserve requirement. I ended up. Um, you can you can do a couple of things. You can either do just a like a quick cash advance. From your from your credit card to have those six thousand in your account, so that you can reproduce a bank statement to the hard money lender, and they and then you pass that requirement. So check, okay. So six thousand, you don't have to worry about it anymore. That's one way to do. You get a cash advance, or you can get one of your family members or somebody, uh, and you can tell them, right? You can tell your family member, hey, um, if you just let me borrow six thousand dollars for a week while my statement um, becomes readily available, I'll pay you a hundred bucks. Right, so they make some money, you make some money, and then but you also got to make sure every time you promise, every time you borrow, make sure you pay it back promptly. Don't just sit around and and uh, because people are expecting that money. And the the way you can get in trouble is by not paying your money, um, you know, fast. But the way you can actually build a lot of credibility is by always being on time with your payments. Right, so that's one check you can make. Now for the other for the other five thousand, you can for the closing costs, you can roll it into your loan. Um, right, you can roll it into your loan, and you can talk to your attorney or your title agency about that. You can roll it into your own, so you can check that out. Now, the other twenty thousand is when it starts getting, um, uh, which I call the gap, right? So that is called the skin in the game that you have to put in every in every deal. Whatever the hard money lender doesn't put in, or the private uh, lender puts in, that um, they are expecting you to put a certain amount for you to be uh, committed into the deal. Now, at first, what I did, just like I told you guys, so I didn't have any of that, any of that money. I had the reserve requirement that they were they, they needed, 
Um, I had the local, kind of the local knowledge of the Asheville market, and I had the property, I had the agent, and I had the contractors lined up. So I put that all on the table. So I found somebody that was a lot more, and I very, I advise towards this a lot, is find somebody that has a lot of experience or a lot more experience than you do to not necessarily get involved in the whole, in the decision-making of every single thing, but you have to have somebody that you can bounce ideas with that will prevent you from making huge mistakes. So, and just like we talked about, contracts with contractors, how to deal with, how to deal with those guys that actually, um, you know, uh, run away from the job um, and you already paid them um, more. How to, uh, somebody to tell you, hey, you're paying way too much for materials. This property doesn't need those type of materials, those luxury materials. Um, and also somebody that you can just go to for advice on, on how to handle pretty much from start to finish what, whatever you need, right? Um, so I would say that's the best way to do it because it keeps both people accountable. The private lender or the, the joint venture partner that you have is wanting you to succeed and is also wanting to see money from that because they're, very, they're putting very little time into it. So they want to see a very big return investment. So that's a big benefit for them. And the other thing is a big benefit for you because not only you're learning and gaining education, but you're getting, uh, after you get this first deal, you now have credit, more credibility with lenders around your area. Um, so that's, that's what I would say. Thank, thank you, Julian. I think, you know, very elaborate explanation. I think a lot of our listeners can really take on all this advice and, and you know, kind of feel more confident about going into real estate investing. Now, you talked a little bit about market, how you knew the Asheville market. So my question is, how much do you look at markets in terms of job growth, location, demographics, when you buy a property? Um, so I would say um, the main thing, <clears throat> you know, and this, this question is interesting because um, – the first thing you have to look at before you look at um, before you look at the market and everything like that is to make sure um, you're you have enough comparables to bet to bet the deal, right? So I would say the first thing I look at is location, location, location for sure, right? But um, the demand in the area is very important, and how do you find demand, right? So um, like in this other property we were talking about before, this property is a hundred thousand. We purchased it for a hundred thousand. Well, let's say you go to the MLS or you pull comparables, comparable properties, and you find a property a mile away that is a hundred and fifty thousand. Well, when you look at the map, that other property might be across a highway, might be in another um, school district. So, the way I like to do it is, I get. Um, I get the specific property. I look briefly at the comparable properties that are in the area, make sure there are enough within half a mile or within a mile that are still within the same school district. Uh, and school district is very important because, they, um, you know, I didn't used to think about this because I'm still young. Uh, I'm not married. So I wasn't thinking too much about that. But that is very important for people to keep their kids in the in the right school. Um, and, and, and those things, right? So you got to make sure it's in the same school district. Um, so then once you have enough uh, comparables, then let's say a deal is 200,000, <clears> or <throat> uh, like the average of all the comparables is 200,000. I uh, multiply that by 70% to give you a 30% profit margin and buffer, right? And then you minus the repairs that you're estimating, and that's the price you should purchase it at. So... <clears throat> to your question, the main thing is location, and you have to feel that when you actually look, like in Google Maps, when you actually look at the, lo the location that's in the attractive area and is, it is, good, is in a good school district, and then once you vet the deal that way, um, um, I would say as far as job growth, uh, that <clears throat> you don't, uh, you don't I, I personally don't look at that that much right now. Um, unless, you know, because if there is enough demand, for example, usually you can tell that from, uh, the days on market that, uh, comparable properties have sold. So if you have three properties and they sold within 10 days, within 20 days, you know, it's a pretty healthy market. So 
obviously once you get farther into it and you drive to the property you're going to start seeing hey are there any manufacturing facilities around are they are there enough restaurants is how's the school district how does it look and you look at it towards that perspective um because uh, as far as as far as job growth and demographics that can change very rapidly i think the main thing is uh working with your local agent kind of leveraging his his uh, local expertise and you actually going to see the property and the and the neighboring uh the surrounding area to, to to make sure that you're pretty clear that this is a great investment great so Julian, let me ask you, uh, from, from your point of view, how important do you think networking is in this business of real estate investing? Yeah, so this is a great question. So, um, you know, what I would say is networking is everything. So, and, and why is that? So let me, let me make an example. So, as I said, when you, first, when you first make your first deal, not a lot of hard money uh, lenders know you. And, you know... This is your chance to, to, to get ahead in the game and provide a really valuable product, not only make them money, but also provide very good before and after pictures and make sure you sell it quickly. Once you do that, then now you have a track record. Right? Now you have one rehab. Now they know you can handle money. You're responsible. You pay on time. You provide a great product and you have potential. So the next thing is, okay, now you have a rehab. Now what the best thing to start doing is that I started doing is I made a whole I started researching you know networking with other investors and see who they were using as far as hard money lenders um, and also just looked up online you know, different hard money lenders and as you actually start getting into this business you start getting a lot of um, you know even mail that of hard money lenders you know saying they have they have money for you for your deals so what I started doing is I started gathering a sales spreadsheet with all the hard money lenders in the different capacities or the different fundings and areas that they do. So, for example, you have uh, lender X does rentals, rehabs, and construction. Lender Y does only rentals. And I kind of broke it down uh, that way. So the next time I got a deal, I would shoot it out to everybody. And even you don't even have to wait for the next deal to come up. I would shoot it out to everybody just to see, just for them to get to know you that you're in the in, in that specific area. And that's what, that's like kind of a little bit about your business. What are you interested in or how do you run your business? So that's the first thing. The other thing is very important for you to get into your local real estate association, just because you're going to see there's a lot of people with a lot of, with a lot of knowledge that have done this for 20, 30 years. So obviously they have a perspective of like, for me, what was most important is they have a perspective of when the the market the market crashed and how to survive that in real estate right the idea is for you to buy properties at a at a, at a good discount so that you're protected from that but a lot of people lost money in 2008 when the market crashed so um i want to get i want to communicate with as many people that have gone through that experience so that i can diversify my portfolio and protect myself from um from that kind of uh, you know i would say failure um and so I would say um, meetup groups is very important. Meetup groups in your area. Um, in Nashville, there is uh, relatively few uh, meetup groups because it's more of a, like a tighter niche market. Uh, but in the larger cities, there's a lot of meetup groups, a lot of real estate associations. And that's the perfect place to find your first joint venture partner or somebody that could you know, fund the majority of, you know, of your first deal or your second deal, et cetera. Um, the other thing is there are sell groups on Facebook groups, right? So like, for example, here I'm in, I'm in one called Asheville, uh, uh, you know, Henderson buy and sell group. And there's another one, uh, called Asheville real estate investors. And there's a lot of people there that you can meet. And as you start seeing their posts, you can start seeing, Hey, do they fund? Do, are they looking for partners? Are they looking for deals? So regardless if you get into wholesaling or rehabbing or new construction or rental, I would just focus on those specific people that will actually help you take that next step. Not necessarily, you don't have to think about who's going to take me to, you know, be a millionaire. Um, now I would say, what's the next, what's the next immediate step? Um, just like in the book, uh, called the one thing by Gary Keller, you got to ask yourself all the time, Hey, what is the one thing in my business that would take me, uh, that if I just do this one thing, it would make everything else easier. 
And with that, go ahead and start meeting people and putting people in place to help you succeed in that, in, uh, in your goal. So now I want to talk about probably the not so sexy side of uh, real estate investing, which is the financial side of the business. But I do think is probably one of the most important thing, especially when you have investors, you want to, you know, you want to keep track of the expenses. So then at the end of the day, you can provide profits and you can pro- you can show your, your, your real estate investors what you've done and, and how profitable your, your deals are. So can you talk about how do you manage the financial side of the business? Yeah, um, and this is actually, um, just like you said, this is the the side that's kind of behind the scenes, but it's, it's a very critical part of actually staying in business. So, you know, as far as this question, um, so I studied industrial engineering at the University of Florida, so I've always been uh, very good at, you know, um, Excel spreadsheets and coding macros and, and kind of different, uh, different software. So when I first started, um, I actually used Google Docs. Um, I actually used Google Docs across the board, not only because um, since I was working full time, I could access it in my work computer, I could access it in my phone, I could keep track of receipts, etc. So to that question, when I first started the business, I was using um, Google Docs, a spreadsheet where I have one tab saying a summary, for example, how much did I purchase the property for? how much labor, how much material, and how much clothing costs am I making, or am I, uh, um, am I uh, doing, right? So in the holding cost scenario, that's where, that's where you house how much interest you're paying to that lender every single time. So that's one tab. Now the other tab, the other tab I have um, labor. So at first when I started, I just pretty much had, okay, contractor X uh, is doing this, like for example, um, you know, plumber X is doing plumbing work for kitchen, a thousand dollars. He was paid on February twenty third, two thousand nineteen, and then um, and then the last one I would put a receipt. The receipt is very important, and it helped me out a lot because um, having having a link to the to the receipt allows you to really dig down on. What I mean, what you bought, what is the item number, for example, what Lowe's or Home Depot's item number that you bought, it makes it easier for you to return material and it also makes it easy to um, to just kind of keep track of all your receipts for tax time. So now I have that labor and, uh, and now as I got it better, now I have it broken down by contractor, by category, by date um, and, and, and things like that. Now the next one you have materials which materials is pretty self-explanatory and keep track of materials. At first, for example, if I went to Lowe's and I bought I bought a light and I bought a kitchen cabinet and uh, something else, I would just put it in in one specific um, you know uh, entry. But when you put it in one single entry, you don't you, you it's hard to tell what you actually bought. Right, so I just started progressing in the business and stuff like that. I actually look at the receipt and try to itemize it. Okay, I bought one uh, um, one light fixture and then put this in the electrical category. I bought one kitchen cabinet, put this in the kitchen category. So it gives you for your next rehab, it gives you a very good understanding of how much you spent for rehab and materials for a single um, category. So, for example, you have kitchen or you have drywall. Drywall is a perfect one you know exactly how much labor you spent you know exactly how much um how much material you spent for that specific category um and then uh the last one is the holding cost that i I was talking about that's where you house all your your, you know your utilities maybe a storage unit that you're paying for your insurance and um and how much interest you're paying to your um to your lenders so coming back to the financial side of the business that's how i that's how i started something that you can understand yourself so there's a lot of education companies that give you the give you templates of what you should use but as you start noticing as you go through the business and in your different markets and people that you deal with you need to like you need to sit down and look at the system and make sure it works specifically for you and what you like and how you like it to work um so that's what i did i kind of did my my own uh, excel spreadsheet to analyze deals uh, to get comparables, to really analyze everything very quickly, to uh, keep track of all the interests. And now, um, 
the next step after that is I, I started using uh, QuickBooks to keep track of my expenses because in this business you leverage a lot. Uh, you leverage everything. You leverage your credit cards. You leverage other people's money. You leverage other people's time. So I started using QuickBooks. Uh, but actually, what I started realizing when I when I came to tax time, I um, there's another version of QuickBooks, like the latest version, that allows you to um, create projects and house all the expenses under that project. So as I've gotten better, and and obviously the the goal is to automate as much of the business as you can and to start delegating all this administrative work to something else, right? So now I have um, I have QuickBooks Plus where I have, for example, Project X, all the expenses are under that, all the contractors are under that, how much they're paid, all the receipts, all the transactions, so that when it comes to tax time, it's very easy to know, hey, I spent this much on here, this much profit I made, this is how much refund I got from the IRS or how much I paid the IRS, etc. So it becomes a... so. The goal is for you to learn that and know how it works and then go ahead and delegate it, you know, to another system or another person that uh, will do it for you in the future. So so I think like one of the most important things that you said, uh, Julian, was one, uh, the more specific you are, then you sort of create a database for yourself. So like you said, right, so you can actually know how much you know, you, you have an, a rough estimate of how much a kitchen remodeling should be. So and I think that's a lot. That's a part that a lot of people miss, right? Like they kind of overlook the details and they don't itemize. So when it comes, when, once you start atom, itemizing and be more detailed, you can actually create your own database. And then from that point, you can actually have better estimates, right? As to how much is going to cost you to do X, Y, and C job, right? 100%. 100%. And uh, what I would say is, as I started going you start finding that you can automate a lot of it. For example, when you go to a hard money lender, um, they ask you the same thing pretty much all the time. Your articles of incorporation, uh, your bank statements, um, you know, uh, comparables of the property, you know, um, MLS listing, etc. You can make that very quickly. So you can make your own little, um, your list or checklist and just kind of every time that happens, it's quick. Just go through it. Just go through it, and and it'll it'll be like that. My goal right now is to using this QuickBooks Plus is to uh, have have a uh, create a uh, property uh, in QuickBooks and have all the expenses under that. That really accurately tells me how much do I pay per subcontractor, how much do I pay for, um, how much do in credit cards do I use, how what how much do I spend in the kitchen and then drywall and sheetrock and all that stuff so that you can have um, the best metrics possible and you can start reducing that. And then in the other side of it, you got to start also looking for vendors where they keep track of what material you, you're actually purchasing. Because um, what I started realizing is as, as a lot of the time we fall in love with properties and we start putting things in properties that are not necessarily in stock or are custom which is all fan, fine and dandy. But the problem is as, as you start getting, uh, let's say you get in trouble with one of your contractors, now your whole timeline got messed up and you have to go really quick. Well, now you have to, now you have to make sure all the material they use from now on to move as quickly as possible in stock. So there's two things I would say as far as the financial side of the business. Use a tool, for example, like QuickBooks to itemize and create projects and itemize all your expenses. Um, not only makes it easy for you to uh, file 1099s with your contractors. It makes it easy for you to um, estimate repairs on a future project. And it also makes it easier to uh, file your taxes at tax time because now as a business, it takes a lot more time than just doing it personally. Um, and then the other side is find a good vendor that either you have credit with or, or, or something. Like for example, Home Depot, you can set up their, their pro account where you know exactly what you bought with a picture, with everything. So in the future, you will, you can create very easy templates of, hey, in every property, in like a low-income property, I'm using this windows. Medium income, I'm using this windows, etc. And you can start building templates around it so it's very quick. It's a process, right? Yeah, that is true. It's all about systemizing a business. I think that's kind of what you're alluding to. The more you systemize, the faster you're able to work, the better you're able to work, the more quality work you're able to have. Um, so Julian, let's talk a little bit about mindset. How much do you think mindset plays a role in the success for a real estate investor? 
so I would say um, just like net, just like networking, acquiring, I would call it acquiring uh, social capital, um, right? Uh, that's why kind of people can people can benefit you a lot. Obviously, when you network, right? If you leverage all the resources. Now, as far as mindset, uh, mindset is huge. Mindset is everything, right? There's a lot of people that um, the first sign of um, failure or contractor messes them up or something, they can, they would curl up in bed and and not be as productive as they were the day before. Um, just as like my coaches and my mentors would say is. You got to keep your why. Why you got into this business in the forefront of your mind. Um, for me, my why is, uh, and for a lot of people, would be I want to be um, financially free to be able to um, to actually impact everything, impact everything around me, give my time to other organizations, and uh, give the best I can to my family and myself. Um, but my, uh, but the, the the main thing is. Keeping your why in the forefront of your mind will allow you to stay consistent in the middle of all the curveballs that you're going to get thrown. Right? You get you get curveballs in all different in all different aspects. You get with there's a lot of people involved in real estate. You get sellers. You get title agencies, attorneys, agents, contractors, which are probably the biggest curveballs. Um, and you gotta you gotta know you gotta know why you're doing it. And um, the beauty about this business is as you get as you get surrounded with people that coach you through it, um, you start realizing that having better financial literacy and better people management, better communication style, and actually paying people back on time makes you a very, um, a very, a very valuable individual, right? And obviously, uh, as we all try to be is, uh, makes you a very valuable entrepreneur. So um, the, the main thing I would say is, um, the main the main thing I try to keep in mind is how you do every, how you do how you do anything is how you do everything. So um, it's it's t- it's it's obviously very easy. Like all of a sudden, hey, I'm gonna go and uh, do a blog every week, right? But maybe three weeks later, something gets in the way, or you get so busy where you're like, okay, you know what? I'm not gonna do that. Um, you know, you gotta, the main thing is you gotta stay persistent and you gotta stay consistent in everything you do. Consistency is so important in this business, uh, and everything you do because your people are expecting your feedback as you get bigger. Um, so you gotta make sure that, um, either you are staying on top of it or now you're delegating it to somebody that will stay, um, on top of that for you so that the image of your business maintains, um, it's huge. Thank you so much for that, Julian. So the way I usually like to end the podcast is with a few rapid-fire questions so people can learn more about you. Are you ready, Julian? I'm ready. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life and why? Yeah, uh, so this is, a, this is a good question. Um, man, there's a lot of – so um, one of the biggest advice even before answering this question, mm-hmm. um, reading books is one of the biggest return investments you can have. So for everybody out there listening, uh, reading books can be very cheap and it's, and it's a way to change your perspective and, and learn very quickly. So if you're the person that does, don't like to read, um, I, would, I would suggest uh, doing uh, audiobooks on the way to, on the way to work, uh, on the gym while you're jogging, etc. because um, it is such it makes such a huge impact in your life and how you make the decisions even if you're not conscious of the decisions the information that's going into your mind is very um uh very strategic to uh, as you start making decisions throughout the day but to answer so i, I work full-time i'm a, i'm an electrical engineer still full-time uh right now so the way i like to do it instead of actually you know having all my coworkers see me read a book because i uh, you know i can't read a book at work um Audible is probably one of the most important uh, apps for me. So the first book I would recommend is The Miracle Morning. Actually, this is one I read uh, recently. And this book is very was very important to me because being able to keep a daily morning routine scheduled consistently really drives the point of paying yourself first before letting other distractions take your day. So my, my morning routine uh, consists of getting up, drinking water, Brushing teeth, um, 
you know, make, making your bed, uh, going to the gym, working out, taking a shower, um, you know, meditating, visualizing, and then going to work, for example. That's one of the things I do. It is very tough to keep that morning schedule consistently every single day as curveballs get thrown at you. But just like you said, you got to learn how to pay yourself first because if you pay yourself first, everything else in life is gonna is gonna work at a higher at a higher uh, level, right? So that's my first one. The second one is uh, Rich Dad's uh, uh, Cash Flow Quadrant. Um, I read this back in college, and this book really wakens you up to the reality of the disadvantage you are in um, being employed uh, just because of what society has taught you. So you start realizing that there is the majority of society is taught to be on the employed side um, or the self-employed side, but the people we aspire to be are on the business owner side or the investor side. So that really that really drives the point of the advantages of being on one side versus the other. And obviously there's a lot of fear around, you know, becoming an entrepreneur, but as I started, you know, as I've been in the business uh, now for about five years, it, you start realizing that what people get taught in schools is such a, uh, it's such a disadvantage because as you start being an entrepreneur, creating your business, being more financially literate, you start finding, opportunities that'll take you that'll jump you up five levels wherein as being employed you um you have to wait for you have to wait two years for your next race and it's a mediocre race and then all of a sudden they they cut your 401k for example your matching and you start realizing you're kind of a slave to that specific machine versus in the other side um it's it, there. Everything is there to help you. Entrepreneurs are there to help each other out. The government um, tax laws are there to help you out. Um, you know, everything is kind of on your side, and it's exponential growth. So that I love that book uh, specifically for that. And the third one is the Millionaire Fastlane. That Millionaire um, uh, Fastlane book has a lot of great ideas and mindset shifts. You need to live uh, really leverage all the resources around you and how to live a lifestyle by design. So this book really changed my perspective on what things are available that you might not think are even available for you um, that you can take advantage, right? So this book talks to, uh, you know, very basic to very advanced, but in between there, you're gonna find some idea that'll kind of flip the switch in your mind to take a different action. So those are my three books that really really influenced my life so far. Thanks for sharing that, Julian. So now, what purchase of $100 or less has most positively impacted your life? Yeah, so as I said before, um, Audible is probably the app that has uh, mostly impacted my life, so Audible and the subscription, right? It's like with Audible, I can't remember how much it was, but it definitely up below 100 bucks, and, and uh, I believe it's like $16 per month. I get one book a month. And, uh, and even I get two books a month sometimes when you start even reading more. So at my full-time job, this has allowed me to absorb so much information. And, um, and even though it's tough to quantify how much it has impacted my world, um, you know, you deepen your understanding so much that it drives your every single decision you make. So what are you not very good at? So, um, the, the main thing that, um, that I would say for this one is I would love to be better at recognizing when people are about, when people and I would say in this case contractors or friends are about to take advantage of me um, and setting the barriers early. There's there's two types of people that uh, I've found. There are people that when they feel they're taken advantage of, they're quick to react. They're quick to react. They got the right response. They're, they set the barrier early. I'm the kind of person that and a lot of people listening might, might empathize with this, is that um, if you're a person that is, uh, you want the best for somebody else, or you're, uh, you're, you're nice, right? You tend to let people, um, you think you're being, you're nice, but the, actual, the other person is actually taking advantage of you. And the, the, the problem that happens is um, contractors are very, very good at doing this, where they would, 
they would seem very, very nice, but they're actually taking complete advantage of you. So I would like to be better at recognizing when that happens, setting the barriers early so I can set expectations. And and, and that also, um, a lot of the, before I thought being nice was, you know, was awesome. It was gonna get me, was gonna get me places and everything like that. And I'm not saying nice is bad because you have to be nice and respectful. But um, people, in the business that are more knowledgeable than you and have more expertise than you, they really value the your ability to stand up for yourself when when things like that happen uh, because it earns you a lot of credibility and makes sure that you're not going to take any kind of any crap from them pretty much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the main thing. And the other thing is um, the ability to have difficult conversations very easy, easily as a leader. A lot of the time when we're losing money or where a contractor leaves, you can get pretty pretty frustrated. And you can, uh, as emotion goes up, your logic goes way down, right? So um, the ability to have those difficult conversations in a calm manner and turn a very defensive conversation in a productive conversation, um, it's one of the things that you know I focus on all the time to become a better leader and get more respect from the people that you know I employ. Well, thank you, Julian, so much for, for, for being part of the podcast, for sharing your knowledge with us, for sharing your experiences, because I think a lot of the people are going to benefit from listening to this to this podcast. Now, before we leave, where can people learn more about you and your business? Yeah, so um, I'm a, so my website, I'm available on uh, you know www.jm11investments.com. Um, I'm also, so I'm a, I'm a real estate investor with Jam 11 Investments. Uh, I'm a real estate agent with uh, Keller Williams Elite Realty here in, in Asheville. And I'm also a licensed general contractor in North Carolina. So there's really a lot of places uh, to find me as Julian Montoya or Jam 11 Investments. But as far as Jam 11 Investments, you got the website. So Jam 11 Investments.com. You got, um, you know, Facebook.com slash Jam 11 Investments. Um, you got Instagram.com slash JM11 Investments as far as, and Twitter as well. So Twitter.com slash JM11 Investments. And um, I'm here in newsletters in, in, in Asheville. Um, I'm in the Fortune Builders community. I'm in, a, uh, I'm in an organization called the Young Entrepreneurship Council that is sponsored by Forbes. So um, kind of all those organizations, uh, I'm, easily, I'm easily found. Well, once again, thank you so much, Julian, for being part of the podcast. We appreciate everything. Thank you so much for having me, Jorge. It has been a great experience. Thank you. Likewise.